What's up, guys? Conor O'Hanlon here for another episode of the Con O Show. And today I am joined by two special guests, and we're going to be covering a wide variety of topics. And this is a unique uh, panel-like show for us because I've never really done this before other than once before with our guest today, in which we just discuss different topics of the day, current events that have been happening, and dive as deep as we would like to into them. So today we're going to be going over the proposed abortion banning bills in Pennsylvania. We'll go over, there's three of them. I will discuss that and uh, go get a little details on those. We're going to discuss the critical race theory becoming a focal point for school board candidates across Pennsylvania, and it's becoming a national issue as well. We will discuss the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder and we will talk about ExxonMobil and Amazon, the corporate greed that just continues and continues and continues. And hopefully, with some of the things we're going to be discussing today, we will come up with some solutions. So today, I am joined by Jeff Kennedy and Kristen Volchansky. You guys can feel free to each take a turn to introduce yourselves. Go ahead. And Thank Kristen, you. get in that, into that mic. <laughs> Hi. Um, so my name is Kristen Wolchanski. I grew up in the center part of the state in Stider County, uh, about 20 minutes away from Bucknell University. And um, how I got involved in politics is my father was actually on the borough council in the town where I was born when I was growing up. So I spent a lot of evenings, you know, coloring in the corner while they were talking about water meters and, <laughs> and borough regulations. Um, my father's also a history teacher. So that really um, kind of instilled a love in both my brother and, and myself about you know history and civics. And um, I went to Lehigh University and got involved a little bit politically there when the Iraq war started. And um, then recently in like 2018, 2019, got a little more involved in my local county committee. And um, right now I work as a um, facilitator for the Hub for Progress, which is a grassroots progressive group in the center part of the state. And also I'm a member along with Jeff of our revolution, Pennsylvania. Jeff, your turn. Well, how long do we have? <laughs> you got a, I'll give you a minute. <laughs> well, for those of you who might recognize this mess of a face, I'm the host of the Kennedy Effect. We air live Sundays uh, from 5 p.m. Eastern time until we run out of steam, usually 9 p.m. Uh, we started the program because there was quite literally no live progressive media in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And sadly, to a point, sadly, we're not the only ones but there's still a precious few of us. And uh, you might recognize me because Connor's been on the program quite a few, uh, what, three times, I think, already. I think three now. times. Yeah. And uh, I'm the chief strategist for Our Revolution PA. I have been a member of the Democratic Party since birth and uh, continue to try to improve and return the Democratic Party to its New Deal, progressive Kennedy, Johnson, Great Society roots. Um, I got involved probably, again, almost from birth. I ran for my very first office when I was five years old. I ran for class, uh, class representative 
I wasn't even popular enough to be class clown. Uh, I ran for class representative of my kindergarten class. And I stood in front of my kindergarten class and I said, I'm a Kennedy. We fight for the little people. We fight for people who are being marginalized. And we try to make, we try to use policy to make life better for everybody. It's what this family does and it's what it's always done and i lost and i have been running ever since <laughs> and i've been involved ever since because that's we've become terribly insulated and we've become terribly polarized but the sad bit of the polarization is that it's become it's become not just a polarization of Republicans versus Democrats, left versus right, old versus young, rich versus poor. It's actually become a polarization between truth versus fiction. And that's what we try to do every Sunday night is a lot of truth. It's what you're doing here. It's why you and I are friends, among many other reasons. It's why you always come on the program. And it's why we're happy to be here to discuss the truth of the matter, the truth of what's going on. Sweet. And someday we, maybe we will be live. Uh, <laughs> I need to make sure that I can, you know, I've, I've tried to think about some live streams for video games, but, uh, that's more my wheelhouse of doing stuff live. Yeah, that's a whole realm. That's a whole universe. I'm not getting into. We can, uh, jump right into some of these issues of the day here, because obviously anyone listening now knows that all three of us can pretty much talk pretty in depth on a lot of things and very, very verbose in, in a lot of ways. So um, I want to, I wanted to start, and this is what made me think of bringing you on today is the, cause the, the focus on Pennsylvania, and I know your show doesn't exclusively focus on Pennsylvania. My show doesn't exclusively focus on Pennsylvania, but we are both engaged or all three of us are engaged in Pennsylvania in politics. And this obviously is happening in the, um, the state house and state senate where three bills i'm just gonna read off exactly what the three bills were um advanced this week out of committee uh to ban abortions once a fetal heartbeat was detected a ban on abortions after a diagnosis of down syndrome in the fetus and a banning uh sorry a requirement for burials after a miscarriage or an abortion I will I'll take the first chop at that and just say that all three of them are really 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 bad. Um <laughs> that almost goes without saying. Um but specifically what I want to point out before I kick it over to you guys is the burial one. I know a number of people that have had miscarriages and I'm only 25. So if I know that and that pain of having a miscarriage has to be amplified by a, you know, having a burial certificate and or a death certificate and a burial and all these other things for that, it's just really, really insensitive to these people that are really trying to claim that they're pro-life and, and having sympathy or empathy for the situation. But with that, I'll kick it over to you guys. What do you guys think of these bills? I think what you just said is is very important because 
not only is it insensitive, it's insulting. It's a, it's a tax on being misfortunate enough to have a miscarriage. And I, I mean, don't quote me on this, but I believe the last statistic that I saw is something like 40% of women will have a miscarriage at some point in their lifetime. So getting a death certificate, I believe there's a fee with that. Um, burial is not inexpensive. And cremation is not inexpensive either. So it is the fourth most expensive thing you will do in your yeah. life. Buy a house, buy a car, go to college and pay for a funeral. Yeah. So why would, why do this to um, women and couples in one of the worst moments of their life? I mean, it's, it feels like salt in wound. It's, I, I think that one's going nowhere. I think the, um, I think the fetal heartbeat to on it on a legal level is completely unworkable. There's really no way to say there's, you know, this is the day when a fetal heartbeat shows up. And that kind of gets to the core of what I always have felt is very, very problematic about the pro-life movement. Um, if, if you talk to most religious people, they'll parrot back to you that life starts at conception. Well, there's no medical way to determine when that happens. It's not even medically a pregnancy until it implants in the uterus. So if, if you started there and legally defined life is conception, then you have really caused some real headaches for the fertility and, you know, medical field. You know, if, if I opt to go through IVF, as I've had friends do, and they um, harvest several eggs, those eggs are fertilized, and then those embryos are frozen. If you say that life starts at conception, does that mean that I have to implant every embryo that was create, you know, fertilized? Or do I end up being forced to um, give up those embryos to somebody else? And have somebody else walking around carrying my child or raising my child. I mean, I, I think the major problem here is kind of twofold. On the Republican side, they have not talked about what this will practically mean when it happens. And on the Democratic side, we have discounted, I think, the debate over does the government have a responsibility to advocate for life. And I think both sides have messed up this debate monumentally. I mean, I think this the the moment that the pro or the pro-choice movement walked away from safe, legal, and few, they lost the fight. Because then they allowed the pro-life movement to define it as when life begins and killing babies and, you know, sexual politics and, you know, femininity. And then you get crazy statements from people like Steve King who come out and say that, you know, if women had the autonomy to choose when to become parents or not to become parents, there would be no more babies born, you know, kind of implying that women only get pregnant accidentally. I, there's a lot of, um, just irresponsible rhetoric and a lot of people making a lot of money 
off of something that is very personal and the government should not be a part of. I mean, I, I don't want the government deciding when life exists and when it doesn't exist. I mean, that is kind of an Orwellian future. I don't think anybody who watched, you know, the events involving Terry Schiavo thinks, I mean, I can't imagine many people or the majority of Americans who watched that and thought, that's okay, that's acceptable. You know, and I, I think this has become something that the temperature is so high on, we can't have a rational debate on. Yeah, and and um, Jeff, you can take it after this, but it's, I know, I know exactly what you're saying when it comes to the definition of, you know, saying like, all right, well, we, we actually want it to be affordable. We want it to be safe. And we, by making those things affordable, by making abortion affordable and safe and making birth control affordable and safe, if not free and safe, you are actually reducing the amounts of abortions and the, necess- the necessity for abortions. We can talk about class and talking about the disparity between people that can actually afford them and people can't afford them, you know, i.e. Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> like someone like that is not going to have an issue, even if it was um, illegal to do that. The second part is that the it's it, this will easily connect with what we'll talk about later with the critical race theory stuff is when I would argue that we gave up why by we, I just mean the left in in general, in a lot of senses gave up ground to an ever radicalizing right wing. And we both talk about this a lot, Jeff, (laughs) since, especially since Reagan, it has been accelerating and accelerating, but by by their stake and saying like you're baby killers it we have to then it's a lot of people react and be like no no like we have to make sure that it's until the second it's born whatever you know there is a middle ground there to be worked within and i understand like the definition of life is tough the um the cutoffs of things are tough and it's a debate i mean this is why it's debated but the last thing is um as Democrats, we should be legislating to protect the right to choose. We kind of forget this. I think a lot of people, maybe if you're watching this or you watch Jeff's program, you might not uh, forget this. But for a lot of people, we forget that the right to choose is only a decision solidified by the Supreme Court. And at any point, that could go away if a case gets to the Supreme court, they decide to ch- take it up and we do not have the judge the justices that would uphold Roe versus Wade if they so chose. But yeah, Jeff, you want to take it from there or, or Kristen too, you can hop back in. Doesn't God, God. Um, the only thing I was going to add there is um, I think we need to, we, we are reacting to the pro-life frame and I think we need to take the argument back. Yes. Roe is not just about that procedure, and um, sorry, it just went out of my head. <laughs> That's okay. But if what the only thing that Roe does is it sets up the test to argue when does the rights when do the rights of the child supersede the rights of the mother, but it also sets up 
the precedent rooted in the 14th Amendment that people have a right to privacy and bodily autonomy. So before Roe, and I don't think we talk about these things enough, um, the state could pass laws to do things that today we would find abhorrent. Like if any, I don't know how familiar people are with um, Carrie Buck and the Supreme Court, Buck v. Bell, but Carrie Buck was a mentally uh, or intellectually disabled woman in like the 20s or the 30s. And the state of Virginia passed a eugenics bill about sterilization. And they sterilized her without her consent or knowledge. And when she became aware of what was done to her and her family became aware, they filed a court case, went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they lost. And I believe it was Oliver Wendell Holmes, Justice Holmes, who wrote the majority opinion. And I would encourage anyone to go read that and look it up because it's it's so profoundly upsetting. I mean, one line that always stuck with me was when Holmes wrote, three generations of imbeciles is enough. That they were literally legislating to get rid of, of people who were intellectually disabled through this very kind of archaic understanding that they thought that it was purely hereditary. And if you just stop these people who are intellectually disabled, or, you know, have maybe other developmental issues, you could create this perfect, I want to make it Aryan society, you know, and so it, it's not just about abortion. It's, it's about the rights of people to make decisions at the end of life um, for people who were um, intellectually disabled and lived in institutions. They used Roe to fight for the right to live in a um, group home and live as independent adults. So knocking down Roe does not um, just affect abortion. And I would also add, I'm not even sure if it would totally knock down the precedent at the federal level for a right to abortion because Casey versus Planned Parenthood reaffirmed Roe. It limited the length of time that you could get an abortion but then it also justified abortion legally on its own terms, not dependent on Roe. So I think that the pro-life movement is a little disingenuous because they've sold this idea that if you just knock down Roe, that's it, game over, you know, we're done. And it's not. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a, no, I appreciate it. And that's some history that we... I, you know, I learned something. I didn't know about that, um, that case. I mean, you, and you, you very, like you hinted on it too, where you're talking about a perfect society, you talk about eugenics and you talk about some of this stuff. And then it's like, you're talking about a time period where Adolf Hitler was in charge and well, in charge might be an understatement. Um, Building you know, it, it was in the, the Holocaust had Jewish people. It had gay people. It had people with disabilities. Yeah. All in these camps. So these were, you know, not to diminish any one of those segments. It's just that the time period could have gone a different way and we could be living in a significantly different society 
much, I'll be clear here, a much worse society because, you know, there are crazy right wingers still believing that stuff. But yeah, go ahead, Jeff. I like to look at this in a completely different way. There is not a Republican or conservative candidate anywhere in the country who can stand in front of you or me or anyone and tell them what their real policy goals are. Not one. And what are those real policy goals? You'll know if you tune in enough that I ref- the Republicans are not a functioning political party any longer. They are a corporation. The employees are the people who are in the party structure and in elected office. The owners and stockholders are the top 1% and the largest corporations. Republicans have now turned themselves into their, their sole purpose for being at this point is to extract as much wealth from the bottom 99% as possible and send it to the top. So what does that have to do with abortion? A Republican candidate can't stand in front of you and say, I want to, I don't want to just cut Social Security. I want to end it. I don't want to just cut Medicare. I want to end it. I don't want to just cut public education. I want to end it. I don't want to just bust unions. I want them eradicated. And I want child labor laws eradicated. I don't want communities of color just to not have a leg up. I don't want them to have a chance. No Republican candidate in the country can say that and actually get elected to anything except in a few Southern states. So why abortion? Well, you have to cobble together a constituency. You have to cobble together several groups of people that you can add upon each other to get enough votes. One of those groups is the right-wing radical evangelical movement. Among their top priorities, if not the top priority, is abortion. Nothing else that is taught us or that we all understand to be the New Testament Christian faith fits into their agenda. None of it. None. But I can get all these folks riled up about abortion. You mentioned, uh, was it safe, cheap, and, 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 and safe, legal? Safe, legal, and few. From the Clinton era. It's one of the best pieces of, pieces of democratic messaging there has been probably since the Great Society or, or earlier. Abortions went down during the Clinton eight years by the way, because he also made birth control much more available and the, and, and the education of birth and birth control and sex education in the schools. But the other part of it is, and I have had these discussions with Republicans, had one on the program, had this discussion face to face in public and here online. If Republicans still, what's one of the tenets, one of the foundational pieces of Republicans that we 
think about or that they brand themselves as small government. That means government doesn't get in to your bedroom. It doesn't get into your life. This is what Republicans continue to talk about that's important to them. Then why is it that the government can tell 54% of the population what to do with their own bodies? They went apoplectic about the the Affordable Care Act. It's going to get between you and your doctor. But oh, by the way, we'll tell you how to handle that pregnancy. It's anathema to what they supposedly stand for. And every single Republican that I've had this discussion with, I thought you believed in small government. You simply cannot make the argument to me that you actually believe in small government when you want to tell 54% of the population what to do with their own bodies. That makes you, at a minimum, a hypocrite. Or it makes you monumentally ill-informed on what it is you think you're standing for. And that's not even to mention the overwhelming percentage of self-described, self-identified Republicans and conservatives that can't afford their own existence. But we're going to tell everybody else how to. That, for me, is the key. Nothing that Kristen mentioned is unimportant. It's extremely important. But when I make the argument, I'm going straight to what you think you believe. You believe you don't trust government. You want to shrink government. You want to end government. But unless it tells her what to do with her body, then it's okay. It can't be both. It quite literally can't be both. I don't think any of these bills will advance as long as Tom Wolf is governor. Heaven forbid that we get a Republican governor or they will all get voted on and they will all go into the courts. The little known piece that, again, from the Roe decision is that the Supreme Court, remember also one of the things Republicans hate activist judges, but we're going to send all this stuff to court, right? We're going to sue the heck out of it and let the courts decide. Roe created law out of thin air. There's no medical bases well, prior to that before with, for the trimester argument. Yeah, that's true. None. There was no such thing in a woman's pregnancy as trimesters. The court decision created that. It created medical, what would you say, practice or medical jargon standards, well, jargon out of whole cloth. But that was okay. Those activist judges, they're okay with us. Just to add in as a side there, I do think that, you know, it did um, grow builds off of like the Griswold decision and some of the uh, opinions that were written saying there has to be within the Constitution an understanding that there is a privacy implicit for marriages, mm-hmm. because otherwise, you know, a lot of these other amendments just do not make sense, like not being like if we were married, I couldn't be forced to testify in a court trial. It's Jeff, you know. So if if you say and there would be ample yeah. opportunity to do so, let's just <laughs> there'd be plenty of chances. Don't yeah. incriminate yourself here. <laughs> so yeah, I I definitely agree with Jeff. It, the the trimester test did not exist at all, mm-hmm. but it was definitely building out of a a legal precedent. 
In fact, I think it was, I think the trimester, uh, you know, the whole idea of it was probably born out of some sense of, of compromise that, well, we do kind of want to limit this, but we can't eliminate it. So let's try to thread the needle in between. Very long answer, but that's what I would look at it. I'm, I mean, ladies, guys, whoever's watching and listening, try that. Try to get to these folks and look them dead in the face and say, but I thought you didn't want government involved in your life. Because if they can do that, and let's and I, I don't I don't keep saying this just for fun. If they can do that to the majority of the population, 54% of the US population are women. I hope I still have that right. It was 54 last time I saw. If they can do that to the majority. What's next? What's next? And I know that that sounds like a re- almost like a Republican argument, but what's next? Do we backpedal on interracial relationships? Do we backpedal on gay marriages? What's next? What do we take back? Whatever we find socially distasteful to us. No, it's socially distasteful to a tiny, tiny majority. And to, and let me say this too, to be, to be, I respect their opinion about abortion. It's, it's, it's the way we're going about it. You want to eliminate abortions and teach women how to not get pregnant or just get them access, snip I- some guys. We have a responsibility here. She doesn't get pregnant unless we do something first. I don't smile at her crooked and she gets pregnant. I have a role to play here. This is not all on women. Ask your Republican friends, family, ask crazy Uncle Larry at Thanksgiving because he doesn't have an answer. Well, and I think what you just said gets, in my opinion, the core of what the issue really is. I do think that it is partly religious for the pro-life. I also think the other half of it is and I think this has become really evident in the way that they've gone after birth control. It's about control because in the pre row time period, it, you know, in certain States, if we were married and I said, I want a tubal ligation, had three mm-hmm. kids. I don't want to have any more. I would need to go before the, my Kate, my um, medical record would have to be presented to the board of a hospital. They'd have to sign off on it. And then Jeff would have to sign off. And if Jeff refused, I can't get the tubal ligation. And so I think a lot of depend entirely on whether we had an heir to the throne at that point. If we had all women, I would definitely not sign off on that. Somebody's got to carry on the family name. (laughs) But other than that, I'm sorry, you were saying. Yeah, Yeah, Joe, come on, man. Oh, my gosh. Um, But yeah, I mean, often what astounds me when I, when I talk to friends who are pro-life is how little they know about what it was like before it was legal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like anybody couldn't get an abortion. If you happen to be wealthy, if you happen to know somebody, right. there were ministers all over the country on college campuses who were clergy who set up an underground network to connect young women in college who got pregnant and needed an abortion. It just exists. Abortion existed. It just existed in the shadow. 
the term back alley abortionist is not just something that was created out of uh, again yeah. out of thin air. It's because they were back alley yeah. abortionists, and it was entirely a class system. You were at the very bottom. You were at the most risk. You were probably going to end up aborting yourself and ending up in an ER hemorrhaging. And let's let's assume for the sake of argument, every anti-abortion bill in the country passes, and abortion literally becomes illegal again. Bill Gates' daughter, Elon Musk, well, he's not married, but you get my point. His daughter, Bezos' daughter, a Coke, member of the Coke family, gets pregnant and it's an unwanted pregnancy. Don't think for one second that they will be able to go get an abortion in probably one of the finest hospitals in the country, if not the world, and they'll be just fine. But a poor fill in the blank woman because it literally could be anybody any person of color white you name it say in a in in a broken down south philadelphia neighborhood gets pregnant too bad too bad and we haven't even touched on the fact of once the baby's born then you're really on your own then you're really on your own. Does anyone know what the original pro-life movement was? It came from the left. They were anti-death penalty. It's a term that's been completely co-opted by the right. Which, by the way, is another tiny little branch of this because we love that, that same group who wants to end abortions loves the death penalty. They don't just like it. They love it. Yeah. Well, and that gets to what is really kind of the fascinating part of, fascinating part of the debate is that um, Republican strategists do not want to see Roe go away. Um, I, they need the issue yeah. to keep this. It, remember what Trump said during the campaign, during the 16 campaign. I love the uneducated. Remember the other thing he said, if I ever ran for president, I would definitely run as a Republican because I can't fool the Democratic Party, but I can take over the Republican Party. So all the Republicans who are listening and watching. That was your guy. Because he said, your party's dumb enough that I can take it over. And he has. But he knew. Well, before he ever descended the golden steps escalator yeah he could not he couldn't get anywhere in the democratic party because we wouldn't be fooled i'm sure a percentage but we as a party as a whole would not be fooled he always said if he ran it would be as a republican because he could take over that party but not fool the democrats and also a little bit of self-aggrandizement there because he was kicked out of the Democratic Party. Yeah, that's that's definitely that's definitely he he thinks a lot higher than of himself than most people do. But nearly also, anyone. Yeah. And it's it's also important to point out two things before we move on here is um, one with that Trump quote. And we've we've done, said this before, like if you're a Republican, we will welcome you into our into our ranks. But you have to be willing to learn, to change, to be accepting, to be empathetic, 
The difference between a lot of Republicans and Democrats, in my estimate, is empathy. And that sense of empathy lends you to, even if you look like me, you're a straight white man, you can empathize with a woman's struggle. You can empathize with a transgender person's struggle or a black man's struggle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we, we are welcoming to people that want to not be fooled by someone. Like that is what that, that is really what I want to point out is that is what Trump and a lot of the elite think of us and of voters in broad, in broad strokes. They think we are idiots. Well, in the Republican country club class, I mean, Lehigh University is a very um, wealthy private school. When I attended most, I mean, there were, there were some middle-class kids. You could find your niche, but there were also a lot of kids who are very, very wealthy. And I got there in the fall. And in March, we started bombing Baghdad. And I remember in 04, having a debate with one of my friends, she was obviously voting for Bush. I was voting for Kerry. And she said, I, I just can't understand why you're voting for Kerry. And I said, well, because I have a um, 16 year old younger brother who is two years away from having to register with the draft. And she looked at me and said, people like us don't go. And that's the, the reality that I don't think we have been um, very good at capitalizing on. Um, as Democrats, is that, and I grew up in the center part of the state, you know, Fred Keller is my co congressional representative. He comes home, he puts on cowboy boots, he goes to Longhorn State Corn in his, you know, steakhouse in his white truck, and everybody thinks of him as a good old boy. Um, but I also have known Fred for a while. That's not really Fred <laughs> behind the scenes. I mean, he does kind of tend to like the finer things, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. But just personally, as somebody who grew up in a rural town, I get offended by the little boy play acting on the Republican side. Um, I would also say, though, on the Democratic side, um, I do think we have to practice radical listening in the sense that a lot of what we're seeing, this, this entrenchment on religious issues and, um, you know, on culture is because they feel like they're looked down upon. When you use the word change in, a, in rural PA, it's something that, hap that is imposed on you by people who don't know you and don't like you. So I think, you know, people like us being able to have conversations with friends and open up a little bit of space where they feel like the religious beliefs or cultural beliefs are respected, that doesn't mean that we have to, you know, whitewash actual bigotry <laughs> and and here's the here's the final thing on this and because i want to segue this a little bit but we can respect people's choice yeah and that's the thing it's a choice when no one's forcing anybody to get an abortion yeah. although when we ban abortion you are forcing pregnancy it is a women's health issue. Men can be a part of it, but we are not the decision makers. <laughs> it is a choice. 
But yeah, we've pointed out the hypocrisy on the pro-life. I, I don't even call it that. I refuse to accept that framing because they're not against the death penalty. They're not. My fundamental belief, if you say that you are pro-life, you guys agree with me on this. You cannot say you are pro-life without supporting universal health care for every single human being. Because without health care, there is no guarantee to life. Yeah. That or is- a background check. That's the other one. I mean... Yep. Weapons background checks. Universal yeah. background checks for yep. weapons safety. Yep. If we're pro-life and we care that much about life, then mm-hmm. let's make sure we have a rock-solid safeguard against someone who does not have a right to have a gun getting it yep. done. So, real quick, I'm going to segue this. These, I'll actually slowly weave these together here but i want to segue into obviously all three of us are not um we're not black if you're watching wait a minute what but oh. <laughs> i were you uh volchansky is that i was um, i was before the vaccine <laughs> now what that's wait, Polish, wait. right uh ukrainian ukrainian all right so we have ukrainian and two irishmen mm-hmm. but i want to talk about Issues that have been well, I good, guess the first a one is tempers in the room at the moment. Just a little, just a little bit. The first one isn't necessarily just about um, you know the black experience in America, but I'm going to piece these into one another into saying that critical race theory, as I mentioned earlier, has been a focal point for school boards in particular i know in bucks county this is one thing that i have been focused on combating not combating critical race theory i'll tell describe that in a second but this combating the QAnon far-right candidates if you want to call them that that are running for school board in bucks county for multiple different school boards And I'm going to segue that into the one-year anniversary of George Floyd, and this can kind of segue into it in a a sense, but I'll I'll say in a second. But critical race theory, for those who don't know, and go back and listen to my episode with uh, Dr. Uh, Tabitha Delangelo, and and I did that with uh, Lolly Hopwood as well, who Tabitha is running for school board. So she kind of broke a lot of this stuff down for me, but I've also done a lot of research about this just because – Critical race theory is not anything scary. It is not something to be afraid of if you are a right winger, a left winger, a white person, a black person, a Hispanic person, a um, Muslim person, a Christian person, whatever. Critical race theory is a part of critical theory, which is an analysis of how to view the world. Critical theory, broadly speaking, takes into account intersectionality. Critical race theory talks about viewing the world through the lens of race, but it is not at the exclusive nature of ignoring class, of ignoring gender, of ignoring you name it. The rest of the list goes on. Critical race theory is just one lens. I also want to point out that it is not being taught to our kids. I don't have kids, but it is not, even if it was, it wouldn't be an issue to me, but it's not being taught to kids in school. 
So I don't know. Have you guys noticed any an uptick in this? I, I've seen people talking about it on on the con- the congressional floor. I've seen people talking about it running for office. So have you guys seen people talking about this um, yeah. uh, throughout Pennsylvania? Because we're not that far away from each other, but far enough. I see this as nothing more. And I say this very carefully as to not sound dismissive of it because it isn't. I see this nothing more as yet another list of wedge issues. I can't get you to come vote for me on economics because I don't have any economics. I can't get you to vote for me on my platform because I really don't have one. So I have to use these wedge issues to try to inflame you. The Republicans have become the party of hate, of grievance, of fear. That's the one. Of, of outrage. It's the, you know, the theory that, that there's 10 people in the room and one of them is super rich. So he, and there's 10 pieces of food in the room and you can insert your favorite food if you wish. But there's 10 people in the room. One is super rich. There's also a box of 10 donuts. He takes nine, leaves the last one for the other nine of you to split amongst themselves while walking behind you and whispering, going, oh, the guy's going to take your donut. And that's what we're left with. Yeah. If you expand that out, it's that rich person walking behind you saying, guy over there is gay. Black guys can take your job. None of that's going to happen. None of it's going to happen. Also, they can walk out with the nine donuts they already have and hopefully steal the 10th one from you while you're not even looking because you're looking at these shiny objects. Everybody's so inflamed about Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's the shiny object. She's the thing we all look at and get incredibly ticked off about while the rich continue to steal everything we have. This is not a small issue. It's not. It's it's the same reason why we're all, why the the right, the self-identified right, is all inflamed about the 1619 Project. When you talk about critical theory, critical race theory, or the 1619 Project, do you know what all that stuff is? History. It's facts. It's data. Let's bring it home for you and me. Irish need not apply. If I'm studying that time period, all critical theory tells me is that I'm going to study it through the lens of an Irish person who was living at that time. The history of it is still the same. It's history. There is no alternative history. Fiction writers write about alternative history. What if Germany won World War II? What if we never entered World War I? What if we had lost the Revolutionary War? These are what ifs. And, they're in, and even those stories are based and studied from the point of view of this thing didn't happen. So what came from the thing that did happen and how would it be different if it didn't? This is about history and it's about inflaming a base of people who cannot take care of themselves 
but we're going to try to convince them that as long as we take care of rich people, you'll do better. And how do I get you to the polls? They're going to take your gun. They're going to force abortions on you. They're going to teach you black history. That's what this is about. And this is the one place where her and I properly disagree. Do Democrats need to listen to other constituencies? Of course. Of course, you don't learn anything if you don't listen. But we also need to go right into these places like central PA and like rural parts of this country, like states that used to be solidly Democratic, like Wyoming and Iowa and Idaho before the Cokes bought them out, that used to be solidly Democratic and remind people of exactly what the hell this party has done for them. And they're the ones that need to start listening a little bit. And hear what their party has done to them. We have to start talking to people again. And that's why I think some folks in the right are so scared of critical theory. They haven't just used it as a wedge. They actually fear it because there's a lot of truth in it. And the truth is that every Republican president has suffered a recession. Democrats fix it. The stock market has actually gone down under every Republican president since Reagan. It's gone up under the Democrats. Budget deficits grow under Republicans. We have to tell these stories. And it's, again, in no way am I trying to set aside your original question about race theory. It is simply, it's a symptom of the greater disease. And, and again, that's not to minimize it. It's a symptom of the greater disease. And let's not mention, let's not forget the fact the right also wants to turn education itself, all of education, not just race theory or critical theory, into a for-profit industry. You can't afford it. Sorry, you don't get an education. And let's go back to the, our first topic, small government. I thought, I thought Republicans and conservatives liked home rule, and they liked school boards. But when Republicans from Kevin McCarthy on down say we can't teach this theory in our schools, that sounds like big government to me. So which side of the hypocritical bridge do you want to fall off? Pick one. Or stay on the bridge, come to the other side, and at least give us a listen. We all know that there's plenty of Democrats that we don't agree with nearly anything on. Yeah. If there was a list of 10, we might only agree on three. But I'll take the Democrat every damn time because they're not trying to actively kill me or turn me into some piece of machinery that as soon as my body finally gives out, I'm, I can just be tossed away. And after we get rid of child labor laws, I'll find a young, healthy eight-year-old to take your place. That's the depth of the depravity that we're discussing. You might have brought it up through abortion and race theory or critical theory, but we have to really look under to the deep, deep depravity of the party opposite us. And they're not, they're a corporation. And we'll get, 
we'll get further into depravity when we talk about Amazon in a second. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, tell me what you think. I mean, is that, I mean, that's, we, I, we talk about these issues on the surface and they're important issues, but it's, it's, we have to start looking under at what the party opposite us is actually really doing by using these different theories and issues and inflame and conspiracy theory and stolen elections and all of it. It's I what frank- they're doing behind the scenes. I frankly think that the critical race uh, theory issue isn't an issue. No. I think it's a red herring. It is. I think it's a, uh, it's when you're talking about shiny objects, it's saying, Hey, look at this over here. We, God forbid you read about, how the CIA told uh, Martin Luther King to kill himself. Or the no, but this is exactly the point, though, is we <laughs> use this as a, yeah, look at this. Yes. And the same thing that we opened the program with. Abortion, look at this. That woman actually wants to decide her own fate. I thought that's what we fought a revolution for. Well, it's, it's funny because I was listening to a call in the car with a gentleman who's out of Iowa who does a progressive radio show like you guys do. And he brought up, I thought, a really good point. He's like, you know, most voters vote on values. They vote on values and shared a shared connection with the representative or political party that they've interacted with. And he went on to talk about, you know, the fact that in his, I'm quoting him or paraphrasing, Republicans show up for, with a gun to a gunfight and Democrats show up with a filing cabinet. And we immediately dive into all the facts and all the detail and we get in the weeds. And he's like, that's not how voters operate. That's how the activist base operates. That's not how the persuadables see it. And I do agree with you. I think this is a red herring issue. I think conservatives latched onto the word critical. And wow. And race. and race and race and race. <laughs> Let's be honest. Here. Yeah. I mean, because what they're what are they playing on other than the fear that my white child is going to be taught in school to hate being white? But this and is to hate America. This is partly why I take the tact that I take is to actually play on those on those emotions. And I don't care if they hate me for it. I don't care if they walk away. Uh, a, a non-believer because they're probably going to be a non-believer anyway. But if all I can do is plant that seed in what I usually refer to as the back processor, I can leave you with something here that maybe ponders and grows and festers in your brain for a few weeks. I p- try to play on that. No, Mr. and Mrs. Self-Identified Republican, I don't think you're stupid, but I think you've been lied to. And I think you're better than that. And why aren't you pissed off yet? And yeah, I do use a lot of data and facts and science on the program. You've heard me quote them out of my head ad infinitum, but because they reinforce the point that you, Mr. and Mrs. America, and even not just the self-identified Republicans, but too many unaffiliated or self-identified independents, you've been lied to and you're better than that. I'm challenging you to be better than that. FDR said, you know, they hate me and I welcome their hatred. Fine, bring it. Kennedys get killed for politics. It's what we do. So bring it. But I'm not going to stop telling you the truth. 
And I am going to try, I'm not just going to bring out a flow chart or the filing cabinet. I have a filing cabinet and I've got all the memes saved and I can pull them out and I can send them to people anytime. It's a shame probably how well memes communicate, but they communicate quite well. But I'm also, I also want to tap into that of you. Don't you deserve better than what you're getting? Don't you deserve better? And it's not self-interest when 99% of the people can benefit from it or they agree on it. Then it's not selfish self-interest anymore. It's the common good. There's a reason why there's only 660-something billionaires in the United States, because it's bloody hard to become one. Republicans have made it a hell of a lot easier. For some, we've created three new billionaires just in Pennsylvania since the onset of the pandemic. It's a reason why it's the 1% and the 99. If it's good for 99% of us, the billionaires will be just fine. I, when I make these arguments either on air, in person, one on one, on the phone, I try to do some of that too. Rather than all passive listening, no, you're going to listen to me. And when you listen to me, I'm going to tap into all those things that make you who you are. I don't care about your damn gun. But why do you care so damn much about it when you can't go see a doctor? I think you're smarter than that. And I think you deserve to be able to see a doctor. You, you know, we're not going to wipe out student debt for these rich kids. Well, yeah, you either wipe the debt out or you don't. But why aren't you pissed off that you can't afford to go to college in the first place? I don't want them teaching that theory in my school. Why aren't you concerned that your school building might still have asbestos in it or lead? Or that there's 40 kids in your class when there should be 15? Because I think, and my party, even with all of its faults, I think you're better than that. I think you deserve better than that. As a resident of this country, as a taxpayer in this country, as someone who works in this country, I think you deserve better. You deserve better. And I'm trying to tap into that for them. When you get angry at me, fine. Scream, throw, throw things, march off about how I'm a liar, fake news and the whole. The, the fact is I'm not. And probably when somebody marches off in a huff, red face, sweating and screaming, it's because they know I'm right on some level. Well, I think, too, to, to clarify, um, the practice of radical listening isn't, isn't necessarily passive. What, you're, what we were trying to train canvassers to do was that when you knock a door and the person comes to the door and said, and you say, what's your top issue? And they say, I'm concerned about all these people who are on welfare or all these people who are at home on unemployment who don't want to go back to work. Something that might sound racially or class, class. you know, wise, very loaded. Yeah. yeah. Or bigot. Stilted. To then go back and ask them a question. Don't just jump on that issue. That might not be what they really care about. Yeah. And when you ask two or three more questions, then maybe you get down to, well, the reason that I gave that first response is my health insurance just went up $150 a month, you know, and 
now you're at the real issue. And I think to, for the longest time, I mean, I did it myself when I was learning, you know, to start doing phone calls and canvassing. They give you a topic, you immediately go there. And you think you're talking about race or you think you're talking about class. And that's not what they care about. So I think, too, it's when I when I bring up radical listening, it's about are people getting better at facilitating these conversations and drawing out what is actually going on in people. Before I throw out this next question to you. Wait, radical um, listening, what? What did you just say? <laughs> Wait, could before, you I, before I throw that out. Start from uh, the beginning. That, roll the tape. This out to you guys. <laughs> um, I want to emphasize what you just said. And if you guys listen to me at all in the last year or so of the program, what do I emphasize? Go and talk to people. Go and talk to the voters and see what they actually have to say. So, Kristen, thank you for bringing it up to go knock some doors, make some phone calls, get involved, okay? I will I emphasize that until the day I die. Yeah, <laughs> I don't do it because I'm terrible at it. And leave trolls lonely. Yeah. That's my yeah, friend. No, Lee. that's, yeah. Just coined that, and I, yeah. I told him I, I'm stealing that. That's that's yep. fantastic. Yeah, and you can. I I said it before. I said it last week. You there's other ways to do things, but just do something. Do something more than just complaining. Mm-hmm. Get involved somehow. With that, uh, I'll throw it out to you guys to say this is where the the loose segue is going to come in is. I have talked about the the murder of George Floyd ad nauseum, as I'm sure you guys have. Um, And I don't have much more to say on that end other than the question I will pose to you guys as, you know, anyone that's listened to my show is probably almost tired of hearing me talk about this stuff. But have you seen any change in policing in... I, I mean, I could get, I could say, have you seen any positive change in racial tensions um, in anything in that realm? Have you seen any positive change since, you know, since the activism has blown up? I mean, it's almost, it's been a year since the, the murder and it's been a, almost a year really since the largest outpouring of civil unrest it, since 1968 or 1969 um globally by the way right and it's actually ar- arguably it, it it is be it, it was beyond what had happened in the 60s um following malcolm or sorry martin luther king jr's assassination so um have you guys seen anything change i feel like Believe it or not, I actually feel like it has. I don't think policing has improved. Generally speaking, across the country, we still see shootings at an alarming rate. There are Western European countries that are part of the OECD, the so-called first world nations, where you can count on less than these fingers how many times the police will actually fire their firearms in that entire country in a year. I believe there were eight eight police shootings in all of Germany last year. And some of the, some of the Scandinavian countries had nil. 
So we just shoot first, ask questions later, especially if it's a person of color. That's so from that standpoint, because you did have two questions in there from that standpoint. No, I don't think there's been an overwhelming improvement. There's been small pockets of it. Absolutely. But I don't think generally as a whole, it has improved. But what I do think has improved is this concept of Black Lives Matter. I think there is a ever increasing number of us, of us who have had the courage and the intellectual honesty to step back and say, I don't think I really ever quite saw it that way. I just happen to think so. I, I, I know that there are probably folks of color, good folks of color, who would disagree with me. And that's fine. You know, we're all individuals and we all have our opinions, but I think the greater mood of the country, those who are already racist are just more in their camp. They're just further entrenched in their camp. Let's be blunt. Country could split again tomorrow. The Confederacy could reform. They'd do it in a heartbeat. They just would. They'd also fail, but they would do it just like they would have in the 1800s. They'd fail economically but they would do it again in a heartbeat. It's the Confederate states that take more money from the federal government than they send. It's the blue states that send it. So, but I do think even in some of those areas, you've seen a bit of an awakening. Do we as white people fully get it? Nope. And we're never going to. Never. But I do think we've seen an awakening. I do think we've seen, you mentioned empathy before. I do think there's been a dramatic increase in empathy just for folks to take a step back. Folks who look like us, just to take a little bit of a step back and say, I'm not sure I ever really got it. You can't, the power of these things, we all have one. And now we are seeing the injustices that we only ever heard about. Now we can see it. When George Floyd is on the ground and begins to hallucinate because of a lack of oxygen and call for and talk to his dead mother, you and I would never have known that if we hadn't had the opportunity to see it. When the young boy gets killed in Cleveland, and I'm ashamed that I've forgotten his name. Tamir Rice. Tamir Rice. Rice. Because before the cop car even is in park, they're out the door and they've shot him. They didn't ask. They didn't say anything. They didn't put the car to a full stop, open the door, and even pull and point at him and say, drop it. Before the car even comes to a rest, bad choice of words, before the car even stops its forward motion, they're out and they've shot him dead. And we would never have known it if we didn't see it. Now we all get to see what our brothers and sisters of color have been living with. 
And that's why I think the empathy has grown. You can't watch the coldest among us. You can't watch some of these videos and not feel something. Does it make you non-racist? Does it make you complete? You know, are you marching out with your black brothers and sisters the next day? There's a whole, there's millions and millions and millions and millions of white folk who haven't made that step, but they now feel something they never felt before. And that can't be a bad thing. The deaths shouldn't happen. I wish they shouldn't have happened. I wish they would not have happened. Let me correct myself that they would not have happened so that all of this was necessary, but it was going to keep happening. It's always been happening. Now we finally got a chance to see it. That's what I think the big thing is. And it has to borrow a phrase, a, a, a phrase that's actually getting co-opted. You want to talk about getting co-opted by the right. It has woken us up. This has always been happening. Now we get to watch it and see it. And it makes us all more empathetic. I certainly hope it does anyway. It makes the majority of us more empathetic. And for that, I'm optimistic. Yeah, I'm very happy. I'm very happy to see much more people showing. It's the, the concept, and you saw me talk about this, was solidarity. Mm-hmm. Empathy and solidarity. Solidarity is always uh, associated with unions. Yeah. But it cuts through class. It cuts through race cuts through religion, you show solidarity when people need it mm-hmm. and when you might not know if they need it because we are together. We are more similar than we are different. Two things. There's no scientific differences in race. The <laughs> actual scientific classification, what's the name that you call it? The species classification. There's no separate human species because you're black or Hispanic or Asian or Polynesian or name it, short talk, name it. We have different physical characteristics in the same way that there are giant turtles and small pond turtles. Humans share 96% of their DNA with cats. There's no difference. Black folk are not a different race. Race is a social construct. That's exactly There's what no I was going to say. no scientific basis for it. When I anchored an, what was it, six or seven hour long George Floyd Memorial, I spoke to Senator Durbin. I spoke to several Congress people, several state reps. And, when, and I've had many, I've been fortunate to have many guests of color on my program. And it occurred to me literally every now and then the old gray matter kicks in and I actually think of something somewhat clever. And it occurred to me and I spoke to, uh, I was speaking to one of the reps and I wish I could remember which rep it was that I was actually said this to. I said, by the way, and I prefaced it a little bit. I tried to cushion it a little bit because it sounds very snarky and it sounds really nasty actually. I said, let me, this just occurred to me. Let's see if, let me ask you a question and see if I can attack the problem from this standpoint. What do you want? What do you people want? And he was silent. I said, because it occurs to me, you don't want anything different than any of the rest of us. Quite literally, nothing different. You want a home, safe streets, good schools, 
You'd like to be able to see a doctor. I'd love to hit a billion dollar lottery just like the next guy. But if I can't, I'd like a job that I can sustain myself, keep a car running, and maybe even go on holiday every now and then. And he sat back and he said, that's exactly all we're asking for. The same thing everybody else wants. We don't want special treatment. We want the same treatment. And I think we're all getting that now. I always considered myself colorblind. But I've learned a lot in this last year. I've learned a lot. And that's the one biggest, and that might have been my words, and I'm not smarter than anybody else, but that at the end of the day, that's what this all comes down to. Black folk, Hispanic folk, Asian folk, anybody who's not, doesn't look like us, Connor, they don't want anything special. They just want the same thing. And we've never given it to them. We've never allowed them to achieve it. Even if you don't want to look at it from the point of view of giving them something, we've never even allowed them to achieve it for themselves. And not just the anniversary of Mr. Floyd's murder, but the anniversary is coming up of the Tulsa massacre Mm -hmm. as well, which is one of the great underreported things in the history of this nation. It's one of the most monumentally under misunderstood, least understood, and mis. It was obliterated. What? Not categorized, but cataloged. That was the word I was looking for. It came in there eventually. Under cataloged seismic events in the history of this nation. Folks of color do not want special things. They just want the same thing. That's all. I, I, I would add it, at least from my perspective, because I was back home during the summer when this happened. Um, I feel like we took two steps forward and we took a step back. And in the, in the category of the two steps forward, yeah, I saw a lot of people come out and go to protests. Um, and a lot of white people come out and go to protests in, in support of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement or police reform. Um, it prompted Senator Haywood, who I still don't really know how he became aware of these protests, to actually come to our area. And say, you know, thank you so much. This is fantastic. I really want to work with you on this issue. And he was getting ready to introduce police reform legislation. So I do think that it, we did make some progress. And we saw um, also a lot of young people get involved, and particularly young people of color who, for the first time, felt like they really had some agency to shape their lives and the lives of, you know, people in their towns. The step back is that I don't think enough um, reform legislation has passed. And a couple of weeks ago, I had a, a opportunity to have a really wonderful conversation with a man who is a constable in Lycoming County for over two decades. And he attended the police academy. And he said to me, you know, a couple of months is not enough training. It's not enough training anymore for you to teach these cadets how to fire a gun, how to fill out an arrest, you know, report and do the paperwork and do some 
you know, physical training with basically, for lack of a better term, takedown techniques. And then boom, you're out the door and you're a police officer. And I, I totally think that that's true. And that's what we still need to fight for um, is, and also supporting police in the sense that the job of a police officer has expanded to social worker mm-hmm. um, and child welfare advocate, mental health counselor, mental health counselor. That's not what we, that's not their job description. We used to have social workers and psychologists who did that job. And then we decided at some point it would just be cheaper to let the police do it. We require more education of our teachers than we do our police. Boot camp for the military is longer than some of these police academies. Not all, some. And we certainly as Democrats talk an awful lot about how undervalued our teachers are. I know that there are many police officers who make more than teachers, but we're undervaluing them as well because we're not giving them the backup. You have to have a college degree to be a police officer in in the, the Nordic and Scandinavian lowland countries. You have to be, you, you don't even in Germany, pretty sure it's Germany, you don't carry a gun for the first two years that you are an officer. Even think about the the think about the the steps that we've made in how we refer to our own police. You know, 40s, 50s, 60s, protect and serve. Right? They were the neighborhood officer. They were peacekeepers. Then in the 80s, they began to morph into police officers. After 9-11, they got lumped in with first responders. Now they're law enforcement. Very top-down, very heavy. Now they're law enforcement. It's not protect and serve. It's not keep the peace. It's law enforcement. Even just these subtle little things of how we think of and look at our own police. And my guest on the last program disagreed with me as a veteran that, that he is not concerned about the military to police pipeline. I am. We know the old saying that, you know, when all you see are nails, the only solution you have is a hammer. When you are taught to kill first, it's pretty hard to de-escalate from there. It's pretty hard to walk up on a Tamir Rice and talk him down when you've been taught kill everything that isn't in the same uniform as you. So I do worry about that pipeline. But I think when we talk about messaging as Democrats and talking to people instead of listening to them, the one union that the Republicans have in their pocket are the police unions. Here's military gear. Here's body armor. Here's everything you need. Except, by the way, when you go on strike and you want more money. We can't help you with that. But here's a Humvee. Here's a tank. We'll help you out with that. And, and their unions are, and yes, I'm going to use the word, dumb enough to fall for it. 
Because if you go on strike and you want more money, we're, we're not going to help you there. You want better health coverage, we're not going to help you with that. But we are undervaluing our police. And I know some people might drop into your show or they might be doing something in the background and they hear that and they're like, what? But we are undervaluing them because our, our cops are not supposed to go when they, even when they go to a domestic abuse situation. Fine. Restrain the guy. Separate the woman. But where does the counseling start? They're not educated enough for it. They're not prepared for it. We as a society are not preparing them. When someone ODs on the street, they're not drug counselors. What do they do? Cuff them, throw them in the back of the car, throw them in a cell. It's not a solution. It's good for the private prison industry, but it's not a solution. And even just on a practical level, um, my grandfather was an ATF agent. And he very often would interact with local, you know, police officers and police precincts. And, you know, that was during like the early 60s to like mid to late 70s. And he never really saw an officer sent out on duty in a squad car alone. Officers were sent out in pairs. Now we're sending them out alone. Almost always. And I mean, my next door neighbor as a kid was a state trooper. And I know that was an anxiety that his wife had, that when he pulled somebody over, you didn't know who you were walking up to, you know, and you didn't know if there's a gun in the car or if this person has warrants out on them. That is a legitimate Mm -hmm. um, anxiety. My criticism, as Jeff said, is that after 9-11, they sent them all this military equipment to the point that I remember the what was it, Connecticut, the police, police, um, the police in that town that had basically like a decommissioned Bradley armored vehicle. Oh, lots of them got Bradleys. Yeah. And they couldn't even drive lots it down a Bradley's. street because right, it, would it would destroy damage. the, yeah, it would destroy the pavement. Yeah. And the, yeah. the chief of police was like, what I really needed was enough income to be able to go out and hire more officers. Right. But now I got this vehicle that's going to sit in the parking lot and rest and that's what republicans think is of supporting law enforcement yep let's not give you let's not give you the ability in your local budget to hire more so that you can take the stress off of all of them you know where i met my first cop he was directing traffic yeah so i could cross the street and go to a high school football game (laughs) that's how i met my first officer not because what was that in the sixties? That was back when we used stone tablets. <laughs> to commun- that's when I sent Ravens to communicate with people, but that's, thank you for that. I appreciate that. That's a, what a way to wrap, what a way to get to the end. Thanks for that. But it is, it's how I f- saw my first police officers is that they were, they were at events where large people gathered and basically they just kind of stood there. And if you needed help, as far as, where did you go? They would point you in the right direction. If a child got separated from their parents, they were the first ones you were taught to run to. Yeah. That's what. That's how I met my first officers, not thinking that some of them are wound so tight that they don't yeah. care about this. Well, that you gets, were speeding. Boom. That gets back again to race. I mean, yeah. my first memory of a police officer was the officer from the Seals Grove Police Department telling all of us good luck as we walked into school at middle school after getting off the bus. Now, if I grew up in an urban environment, like, you know, some of the the school districts in like Allentown or Bethlehem, um, 
their first interaction with a police officer is going through a metal detector. Yeah. You yeah. know, and and having the police officer look them over, you know, it's suspiciously. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so yeah. immediately think that there's something off. Yeah. 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 And um, you guys both mentioned uh, youth, um, young, uh, black, you know, not kids, but young black um, adults, whether they be kids or teenagers or, you know, in their 20s. And I want to plug two interviews that I did about this time last year. Oh, well, One, we can go. We'll, we'll come back when he's done plugging. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't do my plugs like you. It's not as long. <laughs> they, the, the, but it's one with Kaya. Her name is Kaya. Go check that one out. And one with Chandler. Those two um, interviews I would really, really recommend because it t- they talk about growing up in Doylestown, mm-hmm. over 85% white. And talking about their perspective growing up in a town like that, a wonderful town. I love Doylestown, but we can learn and we can grow from that. Um, go check those out after this one. <laughs> we still have we still have one more thing I want to cover, which um, is I'm gonna I'm gonna lump these together, and you guys can chew on whatever piece you'd like. Okay, but I'm gonna lay them both out. So there's a good and the bad of corporate America at this point right now. I'll start with the bad because I fucking hate amazon <laughs> and i would the like language to- on this program oh you can agreed, i can say whatever agreed. i want see what you can do if you run a podcast this oh, who i'm not on radio so. On this program. so amazon and this jeff bozo <laughs> <laughs> um amazon i just think this is something that i wanted to bring up but the- amazon is f- just Putting up a therapy box, About which the you don't get, ther- you don't get therapy in it. Yeah. It's yeah. just a phone booth where you can sit there and stew. You can take a minute for mindfulness, which, okay, fine, mindfulness is good. But when you're working in a warehouse, they're going to give you a booth. Make sure that they don't necessarily give you health care. Make sure that they don't necessarily pay you a living wage. But Amazon and Jeff Bezos, who has made billions. He's worth $200 billion. Say that again. He is worth over $200 billion. He is worth more than the GDPs, the gross domestic products of over two thirds of the nations on earth. Gross domestic product of Afghanistan is $2 billion. Gross domestic product of the poorest country on earth, Haiti, I believe is under a billion, actually. He's worth $200 billion. Yep. So my perspective on this, especially in the, I want to bring this up in the closing days of Mental Health Awareness Month, is that this isn't healthcare. This is not mental healthcare. Mental healthcare is healthcare. Having healthcare provided to you is important. Having access to go see a therapist is important. This bullshit where there is a, a phone booth where you can sit there and stew is ridiculous. So to me, that is the one side, the horrible side, the under rot of our 
of our system, of our country, of our service world. economy. Exactly. No industry, no unions. Exactly. And then I will leave it up to you where you guys want to go with this. I'll give you the good side. And maybe each of you wants to take one. It doesn't matter to me because obviously talking about Amazon is going to get me worked up. So um, on the positive, ExxonMobil, who has known that that climate change has existed since 1970s, by the way. Actually, late 50s. Okay, there you go. Exactly. Um, Late 50s, early 60s, their internal scientists told the, the executives we've done the math on this and we've extrapolated out in a pre-computer era. If we keep dumping this amount of carbon into the atmosphere, we're quite literally going to change the climate of the planet. The thing that always bothers me is that these are supposed to be smart businessmen, right? (laughs) They built this company. No one, no one, had the courage or the foresight, and I happen to think it's foresight, to say, okay, it's science, it's in front of us, we get it. In an era where science was still king, it was science that brought, whatever you want to think of it, it's science that ended World War II, it brought us the atomic bomb. That was science. Plastics were being created, new medicines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There was an explosion of science from about the only country who could do it after World War II was the United States. So we're not exactly dealing with folks at that time running what was then ESO (laughs) as science deniers. They simply decided somewhere along the way, or they lacked the foresight to say, oh, okay, we get it. What if we just took 1% of our gross profit and started to transform the company into a green company. They would be the world monopoly in green energy right now. And none of them even had the foresight to think of it. Or if they did chose the easy route, nope, let's keep digging, drilling, burning. And that's the problem with the structure of corporate America. You know, it shifted When you start giving CEOs part of their salary as stock. And when did that start? It started in the 70s and the early 80s. No, started in the 80s with Reagan. Well, it was kind of... Reagan. But anyway. It all started uh, with Reagan. It all ended with Reagan. We've shifted to a point in corporate America where the sole job of the CEO is to keep the stock price up. Yep. That's it. You know, and that in no way, in my mind, leaves room for doing what Jeff is suggesting. That would deplete the stock value. The shareholders would go nuts. You'd probably get, you know, reamed out. And if you continued, you'd probably be fired. So it's, I think part of the challenge here is reimagining what corporate America looks like. In my opinion, I think there should be a worker on the board. Yes. that's ex- So but before we continue a little bit more of a back and forth here is because I didn't get this. I told you guys before this, but I didn't get to finish was the uh, we that on the Exxon Mobil board of directors two climate activists were actually elected by the shareholders to be 
on the board of directors. So for those who don't know, the board of directors is functionally the leadership of a company. Um, they're like a council usually made up of appointees um, that are voted on by shareholders, but a lot of times they're CEOs of other companies or they're mm -hmm. big, large stockholders. Exactly. So you get these, this weird dynamic where it's like, okay, they're not representative of it, one, the small shareholder or two, the stakeholder, which is never talked about. I went to business school. I am an accountant. I learned about the stockholders and the stakeholders. Not once have I ever heard about the stakeholders outside of business school because they are not the focus nope. of these companies. But it, it's a sloppy analogy, but the board, because it's not, it's not a clean analogy, but the board of directors of a company is the legislative branch of a company. Chief executive is the executive, the executive branch. Yeah, there exactly. is no judicial branch in a in a company, but they are, for lack of a better term, HR. Your, I guess they might be the judicial <laughs> branch. Yeah, maybe, but they're sort of the legislative branch. It's a, it's a sloppy analogy, but it's not not dissimilar. In Germany, if you have a company of more than five hundred employees, you are required by the German constitution to have union representation on your board of directors. Do you have any idea where that came from? It came from the United States as we helped them construct a new constitution after World War II. The United States government insisted that another foreign government include union representation on its corporate board. Some of you might remember several years ago when the Volkswagen plant in Tennessee was going to unionize. The governor of Tennessee went, a Republican, went crazy. The two Republican senators visited the plant, told the employees as they walked in, broke the law by doing it, by the way, that if they unionized, the plant was going to shut down and move. Volkswagen itself had to come out and say, we've never said anything of the sort. We're used to having unions. We would actually encourage the folks here to unionize. We think it would be good for them and be good for us as a company. The assault on unions started with Reagan because he wanted to deny the Democratic Party one of its traditional funding sources, unions. And he was successful. Union membership when Reagan took power was just shy of 38%. It is now under six private sector union membership. And and we we meet we talked about my buddy Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Well let's see think about this though and this is where I usually get some pushback and I usually get some funny looks. Jeff Bezos created a company and a a method of oh, buying boy. everything that you could possibly think of a, a whole new just a whole new business model. A whole new world. I use the. Uh, uh, I always use the example of Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs created something we never even knew we needed, or wanted, and didn't exist. Here's the problem. I don't. 
begrudge Jeff Bezos being worth what he's worth. He tapped into a very visceral feeling that people like to get packages. It makes them feel special. They like to open boxes. And to find and, and to create one central clearinghouse for literally everything you could possibly think of. And to get it so quickly. He, and to get it quickly. So he oh. he he gets <laughs> he gets to have his wealth. This is the problem, though. You don't get to use that wealth to buy off the system. Democrats are always accused of hating rich people. I don't hate Jeff Bezos. I don't hate Elon Musk. I didn't hate Steve Jobs. I don't hate Bill Gates. Hate them when they buy the system. They've all earned their riches. This is the only country where you can earn riches like that. But they don't get to buy the system. That's when you cross over that Rubicon of you earned it, enjoy it, but you should have to pay taxes on it, and you don't get to buy the system. When you walk into the voting booth, you get one vote, just like me, just like her, just like you. But that's not what we have here. For better or for worse, this is the only country you can be that rich. Correct. Um, and as we both know, since 1980, we have seen drastic changes in the tax code that basically Correct. make it so that we have, by the way, for anyone that hasn't listened to prior episodes for either of our shows, tax rates in the 50s and 60s were in the 90 percentile for marginal tax rates for the top bracket. Yep. We have when Reagan came to power. It was still 74 percent. Yep. Yep. We have on the your top. four millionth in today's inflation-adjusted dollars. On your, f- you would pay. I think it's in the twenties or whatever. Actually, it escalated once you got past a certain. But roughly speaking, you pay the twenty-four-ish percent on your first four million dollars. When you got the four million and one, then it went to seventy-four percent. When Reagan took power, when Eisenhower was in office. The last legally, cleanly elected Republican president, it was 91%. That four millionth and first dollar became nine cents because the government took the rest. And today it's 37%. (laughs) Today it is 37%. And it was 35% corporate disparity is worse now than it was during the Republican Great Depression. It's worse now. And And that is is why you and I will fundamentally disagree (laughs) on Jeff Bezos. I'm sorry to cut you off there, but I meet you and I will fundamentally disagree on Jeff Bezos because that piece of crap did not Uh. earn all of that money. He, he, earned money he earned some of it but the company he's allowed to benefit from his idea but he doesn't get to not pay taxes i know and he doesn't get to buy the system i think he is he is not the sole no not at all that has earned he did not develop the same thing with elon musk he is not he might be the tony stark where he comes up with some idea Awesome. You could tax them 99%. They're still going to be billionaires. Correct. So I don't care the how much money they have. 
as long as everyone else has in some. this country has the opportunity to make a living, to not be living in squalor, to not be homeless, to not have to struggle and work for jobs to make it by. So with Amazon, I have a specific vendetta and I want to break that thing up. But there is some good news. There's a piece of good news that you didn't highlight. And again, this almost makes it sound like I'm, I'm kind of, you know, throwing confetti on a bad actor and they are a bad actor. Just last week, Bank of America announced that over the next five years, they will be increasing the starting and minimum wage for all of their employees to $25 an hour. $25 an hour. They now make 20. That entry wage, minimum wage is $20 an hour. They are also going to require, although they put in their press statement that 99% of their vendors already do this, they're going to require that all of their vendors pay $15 an hour. Do they deserve any special treatment? Am I going to change my accounts to Bank of America? No. And the CEO said that it will cost the company several hundred million dollars to do this from a bank that consistently has net profits in the teens, 20s of billions of dollars. They can afford it. So why do I highlight it? Because the CEO also said, we can't afford this turnover. We're turning over too many employees. It costs money. Quality people deserve to be paid. And you get better quality when you pay more. So if it's take, if that, that's why we've always shopped at Costco. They're unionized. They get benefits. They pay a good wage. And that's why I don't shop on Amazon, by the way. They're not perfect. And Costco's not perfect either. Let's be blunt. But we, there is some, some good news, I think, that's creeping into corporate America. There are 8 million less jobs now than, than the beginning of the pandemic. Not 8 million people out of work. 8 million less jobs, period. But yet there's still somehow a labor shortage. I'm not an economist. I can't put all that together. But it does seem that the person seeking work has a much better chance of actually finding decent work than 725 work. There is, for whatever, I mean, everybody on the planet is hiring. You can just, you know, I, when I drive to work, I see signs on the ground in front of businesses like campaign signs. We're hiring. Yeah. Benefits well, from day one. Things like that. Are they perfect and great? You know, they're not the 50, 60, and $70 an hour jobs that carpenters and electricians and machine operators and, you know, desperately high skilled people are, are earning. I'm not here to tell you that it's perfect, but it does seem to me that this labor imbalance that the pandemic has caused does seem to be driving up the floor for everyone. And when a big, one of the big six banks is going to pay 25 bucks an hour, that's not, we shouldn't exactly ignore that. They're not, they're not great corporate partners, but we shouldn't ignore that either. No, I mean, it's, it's an example of capitalism actually working. <laughs> but um, the other thing I was going to add to is I think this is one of the areas where 
connecting back to history matters. Because if, if I'm talking about this issue of corporations and taxes with a blue dog Democrat, it just sounds like I'm beating up on Reagan and I'm beating up on the Republican Party. and Which is liked, cool and, and needed and proper. <laughs> but they kind of liked Reagan, you know. And so I think it's important to, to tell the real history that even in the Depression, you had, and I can't remember the name of the memo, but there was a meeting of major corporations and manufacturers, and they were furious. And their perspective was that FDR was making... Um, owning a business a nightmare that you were going to be run through this tyrannical federal system and that the way that they could combat this was to use class and race to divide the working class and distract them so that they could start chipping chipping away at um mandates to offer child care and you know wage controls and then in the 50s that comes back and it comes back in a different form as the john birch society and they went after Eisenhower and called them a socialist and a communist, <laughs> which to most reasonable people yeah. sounds crazy. <laughs> yep. But it's it's always coming back in some form. And it's it's no different than when Rockefeller and Carnegie tried to buy a president, and I would argue successfully did until he killed over and they ended up with Teddy. And they had and, what is hilarious is they had intentionally stuck him in the vice president because it was where, you know, political careers go to die. Then the president died and their worst nightmare took the oval. The first progressive. <laughs> wore the label and wore it proudly. Um, before I close on anything, do you guys want to give a final word on anything and tell us, tell my viewers where they can find you? Um, Go ahead. Floor is yours. Where can I find you, Kristen? Usually downstairs. Usually downstairs in the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> eating. <laughs> Make it eating and making large, large meals for two people. Go ahead. You go first. Um, let's wrap up quickly. Uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with me, you can do it through um, our Revolution Pennsylvania. You can just send a message to the page. Um. Same thing with the Hub for Progress. If you send a message to the page, you'll get one of the facilitators. So if it's not me, it'll be, you know, somebody else who's great. Um, on politics, on state politics, I would say, you know, the abortion bills make me furious as a woman and just having somebody play politics with something so serious and so personal. But I would reiterate what you said about, you know, and Jeff has said about shiny red herrings. There's a lot going through the state legislature that's on the calendar that is really, really terrible legislation. And just to highlight one of them, it would be, I believe the number is SB 425, which was introduced last year and failed to get out of the committee. And now, you know, they dusted off an oldie and a goodie and they put it back. Basically what this bill would do is weaken the state laws about um, patient consent before you have a major procedure or surgery. So instead of having it be the anesthesiologist and the surgeon, it could be a nurse practitioner. It could be the nurse anesthetist. The surgeon and the anesthesiologist, at least to my understanding of the way the bill is written, having read it, 
to not really even have to come in and see you before you have surgery. They can just get the information secondhand from the other healthcare professional who saw you in your room before they took you to the OR. I've had a, several surgeries in my life. When I have surgery, I want to talk to the surgeon. You know, I had hip surgery um, in like 2003. And right before they took me to the OR, they came in with a Sharpie and said, we want you to write on the leg that we're not operating on. So I wrote up and down my leg, not this one. I really want to talk to the surgeon. <laughs> I don't want the surgeon finding out which leg he's operating on when I'm on a table and already out. <laughs> so, that's crazy. That's my soapbox. All right, Jeff. One of the Republican state senators who desperately, desperately, he gets physical cramps and pangs about how badly he wants to be governor was at the Capitol at the insurrection on January 6th. Keep that in mind. But I would just say, because Pennsylvania is the northernmost Confederate state. Uh, it's why I try very much to use the word Commonwealth. We are a Commonwealth, but Republicans don't want you to know that. They want you to think it's all, you know, you do you and everything will be fine. No, we're a Commonwealth. William Penn picked the word for a reason. We're a Commonwealth, all of us in this together. And we are Democrats are not in it. Well, we seem to be the only ones who are in it for everybody else currently. Uh, but we are all in this together. If my neighbor's house is on fire, my house is in imminent danger. If a flood floods the town, everybody gets flooded the same. The Republicans don't stay on dry ground. They get flooded too. And I wrap up every program trying to be a little empathetic, trying to be a little, and just and try to tell people, you know, check on that elderly neighbor. And see if somebody, you know, if somebody's struggling, pulling the rubbish can out to the curb, help them. Shovel the neighbor's sidewalk. Help them rake the leaves. Go to the grocery store for that elderly neighbor. And most of all, have conversations and not arguments. And that might sound contradictory to what I said earlier about confronting you know, the MAGA hats and so on. I'm not sure you could ever have a conversation with them to start with, but the, but the self-identified Republicans and conservatives and, and, and independents who are not wearing the red hat that you can have a conversation with. We have to start having conversations again. Now, I'm as guilty as some that I get on a soapbox and I get on a roll and, you know, it's just a stream of consciousness. That's why the program's four hours. And that's why I want the program to be five days a week because I probably get on a stream of consciousness every damn day. But we have to have conversations. It's become, you know, there's been a theme, whether we've realized it or not, through this whole program. And it is what you said. It is about empathy, but it is also about realizing 
that we are all in this. It's not about jumping straight to the final. Don't shoot first. Hey, police, please don't shoot first. Don't dismiss that neighbor because he doesn't have this, he or she doesn't have the same skin color as you. 54% of the population can't be wrong when they stand up and say, all I want is autonomy over my own body. We're not listening and we're not having conversations. We're immediately running off into our own corners. And yeah, I know it sounds, it sounds partisan and biased. Fine, guilty as charged. But it is predominantly one side of the aisle that's running into their corner, putting up a fortress and shooting from behind it. I just want to have conversations. Nobody has to agree with me, ever. But at least think about what I'm trying to tell you, because it's the truth. Because it is the truth. My opinion is so on and so on and so on and so on. But the science, the data, the facts, and the history show my opinions are pretty right. They're pretty damn spot on. They're not always perfect, but they're pretty damn spot on. And somehow, no matter how pessimistic I get, no matter how depressed I get, no matter how much chum for the sharks in the water I see come out of Harrisburg or Washington, I still think we can be better. I still think we can return. Republicans do want to send us back to the past, somewhere around the 1840s. I, as a Democrat, want to send us back to the past, too. But I'm thinking the 1950s, economically, except that I want to include our brothers and sisters of color. They weren't included then. But I want to include them now. I want rich people to pay a lot of taxes. We created rich people and big corporations during the New Deal. I just want to do it again because it worked. I don't want to try some grand experiment. I want to do what I know worked because history, science, data, and facts tell me it did. So go have a conversation. And just because I think you're ending after this, right? So just one last thing or two things. (laughs) Remember what President Kennedy told us. We choose to go to the moon and do the other things. Not because it is easy, but because it is hard. We have to again become the country that does the hard things. Not just put a man on the moon, but do the hard things like restore economic justice look at our brothers and sisters of color and say, we are the same. Look at our LGBTQ brothers and sisters and say, we are the same. Where rich looks at poor and says, we are the same. Those are the hard things. That's a hard thing. But we can again become the nation that does hard things. He also said that politics can and should be a noble profession. And I still believe that it can be. I can walk down the street, sadly, in Center City, Allentown, 
not 20 minutes from here, and I can hand an unsheltered person a dollar, I've done a good thing. I've done a godly thing. Or I can run for office. I can run for a democratic committee. I can help choose candidates and form policies that help them all. Politics can and should be a noble profession. And I believe that it can be again when we take care of each other, when we have those conversations. That would be the only two things I would. So for everybody listening and watching, get, just like Connor said at the beginning, get involved. If you don't want to knock doors, then don't. Stuff envelopes. Yes, people do still stuff envelopes. Write emails. Write emails. Make phone calls. I give the congressional switchboard number every program. Call your reps. Do you even know, all of you watching and listening, do you know, right off the top of your head without looking, who your state rep is? Do you know who your state senator is? Can you name all the members of your village, township, town, city council? Do you know who your DA is? Your district attorney? Do you know who the controller is of your county? You can get involved. It's not hard. You don't like watching the news? Pick a different channel. There's no shortage of channels. You don't trust any domestic news? The Guardian, BBC, Canadian Broadcasting, they report on the U.S. a lot. Go there. You can get involved. It's not hard. And it doesn't take double-digit number. Well, we do double-digit hours a week because I guess we're gluttons for punishment, but it doesn't have, you don't have to do that. Go to your town council meeting. When's the last time you went to a town council meeting? When's the last time you went to a school board meeting? Not stood up and burned the room down or gave some fiery speech or through, but literally just sat there with the paper agenda in front of you and followed what was going on. We have to re-engage and we can. When we re-engage, I believe that civility will come back. And the only thing I would throw in, you know, I agree with Jeff wholeheartedly, um, is also, you know, just keep the faith. I mean, sometimes you you see people get very, very involved. And, you know, particularly if like calling legislatures, they'll call their legislator maybe three times. And the legislator doesn't change their position. And then they go, well, it doesn't work. It does work. It just takes a lot of effort and a lot mm-hmm. of time. Um, sustained effort sustained effort i i've been lucky enough to know a few um staff who work you know for legislators at the state or the national level they keep track of how many calls come in Mm -hmm. and whether they're for or against and the member comes back to their office and that's the first thing they want to know yep how many people call so it's sometimes just continuing to move forward even when you don't see the change happening my mom always used to say to me when i was a kid change is slow and then all of a sudden it just breaks through and she would tell us this story about how you know she at her high school organized a bunch of girls in her class to uh, to fight for a girls basketball team and they for a long time weren't getting anywhere and then all of a sudden the culture changed and then suddenly the school board was allowed, was open to a girls' basketball team. You know, and so it's it's hard. 
It's hard and it's long. You know, it's, if it was easy, anybody would do it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. And Jeff, where can we find your show? Oh, goodness. Where can you not find it almost lately? I'm very blessed, truly blessed. Uh, the easiest places to watch and follow the program are our home group Facebook page titled That Other Side of Information. You can watch the program there live. All of the previous episodes are there. Sadly, you have to scroll a long way to find them. Uh, the YouTube channel is also called That Other Side of Information. It is the best library, the best repository for all of our past episodes. That Other Side of Information. And we and the audio only, the radio portion of the program is now live around the globe. I actually heard from uh, one of the owners of Hot101.net, not a few days ago said the numbers are very, very good. He's very pleased. And we are literally getting listeners from all over the planet. Uh, not a small thing. And we might, might, might have a TV outlet coming up soon. So, so you'll have me on, you'll have me on when you get on TV again. I have to have you on when you get on TV. Do you know the, do you know the, the very, You've seen some of the comments that come through when you're on the program. Ooh, who's that? Ooh. <laughs> That's probably my grandma. <laughs> <laughs> so Facebook, that other side of information, YouTube, that other side of information, and hot101.net. Sundays, 5 p.m. live. Not this coming Sunday. If you're watching the podcast at a different time, we're coming up on Memorial Day. We're not doing a live program Memorial Day, but we'll be back right after that. Excellent. All right. Thank you guys both for coming on. I really appreciate it. Uh, do go check out um, our revolution PA and that other side. Of, well, the Kennedy effect. Uh, that the other show side title, of that, right. Um, and that's a great way to get involved too. Yes. Our revolution, Pennsylvania. You can find us on Facebook as well. There's a very active page for our revolution, Pennsylvania. Very easy way. If you're in the Commonwealth as we are, and you're looking for an outlet for political engagement, you don't know how to start, you don't know where to go, you just know that you are not happy with what's going on, or you know what, maybe you are happy with what's going on, you want to keep it going, or there's something good that you want to build on, Our Revolution Pennsylvania, just look for us on Facebook, we're super easy to find. I answer messages personally for Our Revolution. Uh, if you send us a message through Messenger, very simple. We, you, there's nowhere that you can't find us. We're super easy to find. And that's how we met. So, yeah. Um, Poor you. <laughs> <laughs> so, remember, get involved if you can. If you want to follow this show, you can follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash the con o show. And you, you can, can find it on that other side of information because I usually see it when you post. And if I don't see it, you tell me when you post. And then we put it on that other side of information. Yep. So you're there. You can as well. follow. That's the. You usually post our YouTube, our YouTube links. You can follow the show if you're watching on YouTube. You can hit the subscribe button down below and the thumbs up button. That helps us get in the algorithm. You can follow me on Twitter at Con O'Hanlon. The show is on Instagram. I'm on Instagram. And you can, if you have any, any, any money to help us, <laughs> I will shill to help. Yeah. Um, get the production value of the show up to help promote the show on a, you know, the Facebook algorithm, whatever it is, 
$5 a month, you can become a uh, patron at patreon.com slash show. All of our tiers are based on the New Deal, the Green New Deal. You can go check them out over there. So you can go from $5 to $20 and anywhere in between there. Um, We would really, really appreciate that. Once again, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Kristen, for coming on. And until next time, stay safe. Peace. (laughs) 